Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. I'm excited to have Peter Livingston, who's a general partner in Unpopular Ventures. Peter was uh, earlier, an engineer, an entrepreneur, and angel investor before he became a VC. Uh, Peter uh, was the founder of Life Square and worked with GE Ventures. Peter has done his mechanical engineering from Stanford and MBA from Stanford. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you so much. Hey, I, it's great to be here. Awesome. So, you know, how did you uh, get into uh, into the uh, world of uh, venture capital? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I wish they had a, a really interesting story, uh, but the, the truth is that I, I, um, I, I grew up uh, um, in a town called Woodside. It was very close to Sand Hill Road. And when I was growing up there, venture capital and startups was something that was just kind of, it was all around me. And that was kind of the, you know, that's kind of the main business and career path that, you know, a lot of the people that I knew went to. So, so uh you know, I, I wish I'd kind of come from rags to riches or, or not, not known anything or, or, you know, had an interesting story. But the reality is I, I kind of, you know, it's kind of a, a business that, that I was kind of exposed to from a young age. And it always seemed super interesting, interesting to me. Um, my dad worked at a bunch of startups that, that were venture funded um, and I would hear about them and, uh, and stuff. And you know, I always thought, you know, I would love to get into that world and, and be involved in the startups and build new technology and, and invest in it. And uh, so... Um, right when I was graduating from college, I, I asked around and said, Hey, I want to join a super early startup. And, uh, you know, found one that had literally just gotten seed funding. Um, it's this company called iRhythm. Uh, I was one of the first three people there. And I, you know, in retrospect, I, I got really lucky because the company worked. They, we launched a bunch of products successfully. It was a medical device company and, uh, they, they ended up going public in 2016 and are valued at about three, three and a half billion dollars. Wow. Um, so it just worked. Um, and from there, um, you know, I was with them for a few years, went back to business school. I uh, founded LifeSquare, another company in between. That one didn't work out. It was a complete disaster in every way, but, but learned a lot from it. And uh, um, I, after that, um, I wanted to try a venture. The place I landed was at GE Ventures, uh, which was great. There were a lot of smart people there. But while I was there, it was corporate venture. So it was kind of all the investments had to have a strategic angle relative to GE. And in my experience there, I, I realized I really don't believe in corporate venture. Um, I, I think there's just a lot of incentive misalignment and venture capital as a job to begin with is super hard. Like most venture funds don't even return one X the money. And then it's something like, it's, it's a huge number I, and it fluctuates over time. But I think that the number is something like two thirds or three quarters of venture funds don't beat the S&P 500. And, and so it's like, wow, wait a second. So just being a venture capitalist to make money is already hard. But then to also ha- like try to make money and have the strategic angle and all the, this other stuff, like that's almost impossible. And uh, so anyway, in my experience there, I, I realized I, I wasn't in love with corporate venture. Um, but I, uh, around that time, I'd started making some really tiny angel investments in friends' companies. So I did like 10 investments in eight of my friends' companies. And most of them seemed to be doing well, you know, making progress, raising more money at higher valuations. And, and I realized I, I loved that. And uh, basically decided to, to leave uh, GE and, and just focus on angel investing full-time. Um, I, I feel fortunate that uh, it worked. So the, the subsequent you know, six years or so uh, made over 150 personal angel investments through, through a lot of channels. So some were direct, some were through AngelList, some I was part of a couple of angel groups, did a few through with them. 
um, feel very fortunate that it, that it worked. Uh, uh, made a few that did well. And, um, you know, one s segment was I, was I was very fortunate to catch the, catch the crypto wave very early um, and uh, had a couple investments there that returned the fund a couple times. And it just got to the point that, that uh, you know, I, I think no one, I, I don't think anyone in this uh, business really ever knows what they're doing. But at least I got to the point that people started to kind of think that I, I might know something. Right. And so friends start to ask if they can invest behind me. Um, and it got to the point where like, I was like, okay, I, I feel like I, I kind of understand the business a little bit. People that want to invest with me. And, and so I created my syndicate on, on AngelList and invited friends to, to back me. Um, and, and I've just grown up from there. Uh, no, absolutely. A, a super story. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you said that, you know, corporate VC fund uh, sometimes doesn't align the, you know, uh, uh, align with the founders. But what, what was the experience and what what is the investment thesis when you work in a, in a corporate VC fund? Uh, this was, you know, a normal VC fund where, uh, you know, the, the partners, you know, three or four partners are looking to invest. Uh, you know, what was your experience, uh, you know, for, for listeners who are looking to uh, look at, uh, you know, making a career in VC? Um, well, so, so like, like what, what is, what is the experience in VC like or, or corporate? corporate. Or, I'm sure I didn't, I didn't completely understand the question. Yeah. So, so what happens, uh, how's the investment thesis in a corporate VC fund and why do you feel that, you know, um, uh, or do you feel that corporate VC, uh, some, somebody should take investments from a corporate VC fund or not? Oh yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I guess the, the challenge with the corporate VC fund versus normal, so a normal VC is just trying to make money. Right. Um, it's already hard. Now, a corporate VC, so you take someone like GE or, or any major corporation that spends a, a, a venture fund. So GE, I think when I was there, was doing over $100 billion of revenue per year and profit. I don't remember what the number was, but it was like at least $10 billion of profit per year. Right. Now, you think about, okay, so then they spin up this venture arm. And if you, if you do the math, so let's say they get in on the next Google or Uber or Facebook. Most likely, they're pro like in a best case scenario, if they get in early, maybe they would get two or three percentage points of ownership. Right. Um, if they got in on the best venture investment of that decade. And then when that one goes public, you know, maybe it's worth $100 billion or something like that. Best, absolute best case scenario. Like, um, and so their two or 3% might be worth two or $3 billion. Like that's the best thing that could possibly happen. But the whole company, and it happens, and they get the money 10 years later. Right. But their business just made $10 billion in profit this year. So nobody cares about that two or three billion dollars, but that's like the, the mega super grand slam, the best thing that could ever happen for the venture fund. So it's like financially, it doesn't really make sense for them to be doing this. So the reason they're doing it is, um, you know, they want to find strategic opportunities that allow them to make their existing businesses a little bit more profitable. Like if they can increase the profit of, you know, their appliances business by 10% a year and it was 10 billion a year, that, that immediately uh, increases uh, um, their, their profit by a billion dollars a year. So that's really worth it. Um, so basically what they're doing is they're looking for startups that they can plug into their existing businesses to make them more profitable. Um, and it just creates a misalignment because, okay, it's, it, so it, they don't actually care what happens with the startup. They care what happens to their business. And sure, maybe that could be aligned, but that's a really tricky thing to navigate. Right. And, uh, and, and then I, GE Ventures actually shut down recently. And, and I think probably the challenge is that they're making decisions in the best interest of GE, but they're not necessarily making good financial investments. 
Right. And also because of this weirdness, probably the best companies aren't coming to them. So they're losing a ton of money. And then corporate's like, wait, why are you losing all this money? And it's hard to measure exactly what they did for the businesses. And it just, it, it's really misaligned and, and hard to, hard to kind of, you know, it's hard to make it all work. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, oh, sorry. Going back to your question. So, so, so yeah, I, I, I've kind of personally, I think it can work if the objective really is just to make money. Right. Give them complete freedom, go make money. Like I think Google Ventures is a pretty good corporate venture on. Yeah. And Intel Capital, I think, has done pretty well. But the vast majority uh, of corporate venture arms claim out. Um, and so, so, yeah, so, yeah like, um, I think venture capital is, as a whole is great and to go just work for a conventional firm where you know, they have a focused thesis and they're really just trying to invest in great companies and make money and all together. That works. Uh, but conventional corporate venture, I'm not sure if I believe in it anymore now that I've been close to it. Got it. And uh, you, you know, you've been an angel investor for six, uh, seven years. How did your experience as an angel investor impact your investment thesis, uh, uh, mindset and your thesis uh, before, you know, you launch your own uh, uh, angel syndicate? Yeah, well, I, I find I find the angel stuff really fun uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, one is that, uh, you, you know, you get to call the shots. Like usually when you're part of a, a firm with a lot of people, there's a lot of politics and you've got to kind of get everyone else on board with the investment and you've got to kind of focus on portfolio construction where it's like, oh, you don't do too many deals in any given area. And, you know, there's all these kind of constraints. Um, but as an angel, you can just do whatever you think looks cool. Um, right. uh, but obviously you, you bring a lot less money to the table or at least, I mean, some angels are big, but I'm, I'm tiny. Um, and... Uh, so, so it's hard in its own ways, but it's, it's really nice to have the freedom, I think, uh, to, to just invest in whatever you think is cool. And, and the biggest learning for me, actually, is, uh, and kind of part of, a big part of the thesis of Unpopular is that um, my best investments as an angel were the ones I couldn't get anyone else to do. Uh, they were the really crazy ones, the, the ones that were super unpopular. And uh, right. just very off the beaten path, or people didn't understand them. And, um, so like as one example, uh, uh, Bitcoin was one where I, so I was part of a big 60 person angel group. I brought it to my angel group and said, look, like, you know, I know this isn't a conventional startup, but the, the, the potential of it is very startup like, and this was in 2015 it was in the $200 um, per coin. Right. Um, and I, I kind of pitched them on it four times. Like I sent big emails to the whole group and said, look, here, here's why I think this might be a, a great investment. And everyone got really angry at me. They're like, this is so inappropriate. This is not like a good fit for our group. This is not even a company. It doesn't make revenues. It doesn't make profits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, but th it turned out that like that, if, if people in the group had invested in that one, th th that would have like made the, like every, like it would return, you know, three X every investment that group had made. Um, right. And, uh, and, and that's the thing. It's like the best, what I learned from that and connecting that to what I'd read from others is that the best investments usually do feel weird and not safe. And that, that wasn't the only one. There were not, that was the biggest one, but there, there were others where it's just like, I couldn't get anyone else to do some of these, but I, you know, if you really took the time to kind of deeply understand them, um, they were compelling. And then anyway, in retrospect, the, the best ones were all the ones that, that were pretty unpopular. So I, I think that was my biggest one. I, oh, and, and connecting that to VC, if I had been part of a firm, I probably wouldn't have been able to do those ones because they would have been unpopular within the, the overall firm. 
Right, right. Absolutely makes sense. And uh, Peter, you know, how how can one develop an investment thesis to be non-consensus uh, and bold? Because, you know, I've seen a lot of the deals that uh, uh, which you source out are really bold and, you know, they're across different geographies and, uh, and they're very un- unpopular. Like, you've talked about Airbnb and Amazon and a lot of other companies which, uh, which people had written off but, you know, went on to become become such great companies. So how, how does one develop that mental model and that investment thesis to, to really go after bold and unpopular ideas? Uh, well, that's very nice of you to say. I, I don't know that all of mine are super unpopular. I, I, I'm definitely guilty of doing some that are, that are hot and more mainstream and, um, and certainly some are, are less popular. And obviously I have to kind of, uh, I have to find a balance because if it's too weird and unpopular, none of the LPs will do it and I can't, I can't run the deal. Right. Um, but I, thank you for saying that. Um, I, I don't, I, I, I guess, I don't know if I have, I have a good answer to your question, like of how do you, how do you build that, that mental model in the framework? I, I think that, you know, the reality is that most of the best investors already know this, like the, the best investors already are non-consensus thinkers. And I think maybe I've just read a lot from them. So Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen and Paul, you know, Paul Graham is super, uh, non-consensus and rubs people the wrong way and, and all this stuff. Um, but they're, they're brilliant thinkers. And, and I, I think pretty much every good investor has figured this out that you do have to be non-consensus and right. right. So if you listen to kind of their mental frameworks and how they talk, and um, I think, I think at least for me, I, I've probably just been inspired by, by a lot of the greats out there. Got it. And, and also, you know, I've seen that you've, uh, you've invested in Africa and South America as well. Now, how do you assess great opportunities which are not in US? You've not, I mean, you've met the, the founder maybe on, on Zoom, but how do you assess such opportunities? Uh, especially, I've seen, uh, you know, opportunities like PCAP, which is a motorcycle ride uh, hill, uh, and ER Technologies was another, uh, another similar company in Africa. How do you, how do you assess such opportunities? Uh, uh, and you know what is the due diligence you do so that you know you're able to source out such great deals? Oh sure. Uh, so um, well, thanks. I'm glad you think they're great. Um, right. I, I do too, but but you know time will will tell for sure. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, so you know I think first and foremost it always starts with the people. Right. It's you know are these people that seem credible and, and trustworthy, and uh, and it's it's both the founders but then also the, the kind of the solar system of people that is coming together around them. Right. Um, and so like, you know, um, you know, this is another one of those things where it's like, I wish I could say that I just picked random people out of nowhere and then they went on to be successful, but that's not the truth. The, the truth is that I, I kind of picked people that seem to have had success before and, and are, are kind of connected to people that have been successful as well. Um, and so, you know, in the case of uh, Yasir or Yad Technologies in Africa, for example, the CEO is a very, very credible. Um, you know, he, he's a Stanford PhD, had founded a company before that's backed by NEA. Um, he, he, he was independently wealthy from some, you know, he was a corporate executive at like Intel and other companies for a while. Um, so he, he really was a known person with a track record of success. And then he also put a million dollars of his own money into the company. Um, and kind of all those steps, and, and then he's from Algeria and knows that region, and, and that's where the headquarters of the company is. Okay. So just kind of those things together initially, they just the, per, the person that's leading it, it's a very credible person. Um, you know, I, the truth is, I, I wish I could, but 
I probably wouldn't be able to pick a random person in Africa and be like, oh yeah, you're going to go and be successful. Um, I, 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 I'm just not that smart. I, or I don't have the ability to find them and pick that person. Uh, but to kind of pick someone that is already kind of known and, and kind of knows the region and has a track record of success and has a lot of skin in the game, um, that's kind of an easier bet. Right. Uh, and then uh, and then on top of that, the, the traction numbers that they had were very good. And so, so, you know, you can see app downloads and you can look at their dashboard of, you know, transaction volume and usage and, then, you know, how, how much revenue are they generating and, and how is that trending over time? And so if you kind of pair, you know, really good people with, uh, with yeah, it's, they've got a functioning business. Um, that's kind of, that's, that's basically it. Uh, and, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when we, uh, like you talked about numbers, right? And, uh, you know, I want to talk about, uh, since you work with Irithim and you build your own company, which is Life Square, what to find the product market fit because you know you wouldn't want a founder to spend uh, you know five years of time uh building a product which hasn't uh you know got the product market fit or the uh, founder to product market fit what would you find a product market fit so that uh, it fits into into an investor's investment thesis and they're able to uh, invest and grow uh, into that company or the founder you know goes uh, uh, knows that he's not wasting his time building that company yeah, it's a great question. I, I think the key is, um, so every startup involves risk, but you want to be really thoughtful about which risks you take. Um, so one, one of the frameworks for thinking about startup risk is that um, there are usually two big buckets of risk in a startup. Um, you know, there, there are more than, more than two, but the two biggest ones are, could be labeled technical risk and market risk. And what I mean by each of those, so technical risk is like, can we even build this? Um, you know, or with it, with not a ton of money or not a lot of time, like, is it, is it easy to build or not? And with market risk, um, it's, it's more a question of like, do customers want this or is the market big enough? Like, can we actually sell enough of it to, to have a, a good business? And so examples of say technical risk are, it, well, okay. So, so, so you, there are no companies that are low technical risk and low market risk because those have already been built. Um, right. You know, if, if it's that easy, people go do it. Now, on the flip side, it's really dangerous to take both high technical risk and high market risk because, you know, like you don't want to spend, as you said, five years building this thing and burn hundreds of millions of dollars okay. and then realize that nobody wants it. Right. So what you usually want is either high technical risk and low market risk or low technical risk and high market risk. And examples of these are, so like, you know, I, I would say an example of high tech risk, but low market risk is flying cars. Like, right. yeah, you know, everybody wants a flying car. Everyone's been talking about it for decades. It's like, when are we going to get our flying cars? Um, but, uh, but so you know that if you could build one in the way that people are imagining it, everyone would want it, but it's really, really hard and you don't know if you can. An example of the opposite, uh, so low technical risk, but uh, high market risk uh, might be actually something like Facebook initially, right. where, you know, it's like, you know, Zuckerberg built the original version of Facebook by himself in 40 days. Like, that's pretty easy to build. But there had been like 10 different social networks before that, and none of them really got the same level of traction. And it's none of them had figured out how to tap the customers in the right way that really got them to want it. Right. Um, and so, so, yeah, most social networks are... Uh, high market risk, but low technical risk, because you're not sure if, if uh, the dog's going to eat the dog food per se. So um, where, I'm going, where I'm going with this is it's, it's like um, you want to pick one or the other. It's okay to take market risk 
if you can kind of build it quickly and iterate and keep keep experimenting and trying to figure out exactly what the market wants. But you don't want to ha do that with high technical risk and spend a lot of time. On the flip side, if you know 100% that this is what the world needs and what people want and, and it's like very obvious, then yeah, it's okay to take more technical risk. You can take a few years to build it because you know that if you build it, they will come. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, the key is to kind of figure out which risk you're taking and make sure you're, you're only taking one or the other risks or, or you're limiting your risks. I don't know if that makes sense. Got it, got it. And, um, yeah, you know, I uh, recently had Fabrice Grindel, who's the, the founder of FCA Labs on, on the podcast, and uh, he was very clear about what, uh, and, you know, he he's a guru in marketplaces and he loves investing in the marketplaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's in Yassir with us, actually. Yeah, oh, I think yes. we're co-investing in a few companies. He's oh, what, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, he, he's very smart and intelligent, and he was very clear about what are the important metrics uh, for for uh, for this or for him to invest into startups. But what do you think are the most important metrics for uh, for you to invest into into startups when you're looking into uh, into sectors as diverse as fintech to logistics to transportation? What what would, you know uh, if they want to approach uh, a founder wants to approach you? What are the important metrics they should keep in mind? Uh, because when you're looking at at a seed stage funding, uh, uh, they don't have, uh, you know, CAC to LTV uh, ratios, or, or do you think those those ratios are important at IRC fund stage? A uh, great question. So, um, first, it's different for every business. Right. If, if you know, going to the last framework we talked about, if it's if it's a high technical risk business, but they've made impressive R and D milestones where they're kind of proving out that it's going to work, but they don't have any sales yet. That's fine. Like, like, like if we know it's going to sell and, and they're the right people to build it and they've made progress on it, then, then I'll invest in that with, with effectively no sales metrics. Um, now, and then for the ones that are in the market, it's always different. Um, you know, uh, so you, you have to evaluate it based on the specific business. Um, I guess the way that I, I often distill it down for people is that um, I... I on pretty much every deal I do, I want to see something uh, numerically miraculous. Okay. Um, so I want to see something that's in numbers and is really surprising or not obvious or something like that. And so it doesn't necessarily mean like a certain amount of revenue, although that works. I'm often really impressed by a huge amount of revenue that's growing quickly. Uh, but it could also be really surprising engagement. Like, like you know, Clubhouse as, as one example um, that okay. recently raised a ton of money at a high valuation the number that was miraculous for them was that people spent a lot of time on the platform. Like they only had, I think they had fewer than a thousand users on the platform, but people would come and stay for hours and hours and then they'd come back the next day and keep doing it. Well, and so, so yeah, if it like, um, actually one of my favorite things to ask entrepreneurs is, uh, w what do you think is the most important metric in your business? And it's an interesting question for a few reasons. So the first is that, um, it lets you see um, how the how the entrepreneur is thinking about their own business, and uh, sorry, it's like foggy and there's like water dripping on me. Um, so so usually when I ask this question, you know, what do you think is the most important metric in your business? That the entrepreneur like either the entrepreneur is not thoughtful, or it shows how thoughtful they are about considering all the elements of the business and what matters and what doesn't. And and then. Um, if they can kind of articulate the specific thing, they, they get to, okay, this is the thing that is most important right now. And, and also in most businesses, the most important metrics change over time. So they might be focused on one thing initially, like Clubhouse as an example, they're trying to build a good product with high engagement. 
but right. later they'll probably care more about total users and later they'll care more about total revenue or something like that. So it'll change over time. Okay. Uh, but to the extent that the entrepreneur can articulate why a certain thing is the most important thing right now, and then we can talk about what they're doing to improve that metric. And then we also see how that metric is changing over time. Um, that can often uh, uh, be the seed of like a really compelling story about why, the, why they're doing really well with their business. I don't Got know if it. that makes sense. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, metrics could be different for, for different entrepreneurs or different uh, industries per se. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to understand, are there any sectors you enjoy, uh, you know, uh, 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 I mean, you, you really enjoy investing in or are there any sectors you avoid uh, or, or you pretty much look at any uh, any uh, sector and you would want to invest once you understand, uh, you know, what is the uh, what, what is the team and the founder looking to build? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll do anything. Like like the, the core thing I really look for is really great people. Okay. And, and I get excited when they're kind of going and doing something weird um, and different. And, and yeah, I'll do that at any stage. Like I, I do some stuff that's pre-revenue, but I usually expect to see that they've really thought it through or already kind of done some testing. Um, and then I do a lot where they, where they have some traction or, or miraculous numbers, as I call them, um, where they're kind of a, a little ways along and, and making some progress on and executing on their vision. Got it. And, uh, you, uh, you know, in 2018, you know, I was looking into the annual report, you were trying to build your own VC fund and, uh, but you now build a very successful, uh, angel syndicate, uh, you know, what is the secret to build a, build a syndicate? You know, I, uh, I've been trying to, uh, help raise funds for, for startups through the syndicate model, um, in India, but I've not been successful. So, uh, you know, what is it that an angel syndicate should do if they want to, uh, or, or, you know, VC, uh, you know, who wants to, uh, you know, build their own fund. What are you, what were your learnings when you're trying to uh, create your own syndicate and get as many number of LPs, uh, good LPs who who can come and back your syndicate? Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question. Yeah. You touched on, on a backstory. So, so I'll share that with, with the listeners. So, um, it's funny after I'd been in angel investing successfully for a while, um, I went and tried to raise a, a normal fund. I tried to raise a $20 million venture fund, right. talked to a ton of LPs and got turned away by every single one. of them. And, um, they, there were kind of two pieces of feedback. So the first was, um, we were living in Florida at the time and they didn't like that I was in Florida. Right. And the second one was that, um, I had put up good returns with uh, my own money and they, it was kind of like the feedback was like, it doesn't really count when it's your own money. So they wanted to see that I had uh, put up good returns with other people's money. And then it was also combined with bigger checks. So, so my, my personal checks were tiny. It's very easy to get a five or 10 K check into a hot deal, uh, but it's much harder to get half a million or a quarter million or whatever it is. Uh, so they wanted to see that I could do the same thing, but with bigger checks and other people's money. And so initially switching over to AngelList was a pivot for me where I thought, Okay, I'm going to go do this, prove that out, and then go raise the fund. And the funny thing is uh, the, the syndicate took off, and I'm already moving uh, more money faster through the syndicate than I would have been with my $20 million fund. Right. And, um, and I like the structure, and, and there's some interesting things I can do with it, and, and it's come to the point where I've realized I like this better than doing the fund, and I've decided, whereas this was supposed to be a stepping stone to the fund, I've decided this is where I actually want to be, and so I'm, I'm going to stay here. Um, so, so getting, getting to your question of how do you kind of build it? Um, I, I think I benefited some from having, uh, had a lot of experience, both operating right. startups and investing myself and building kind of mental framework about it. Uh, but you don't need that. I think the key, uh, 
So the two keys are access to good deals and being able to tell a compelling story about them. And, um, and I, you know, I, I haven't always been good at the storytelling, but I think I've gotten better at it. Right. And uh, yeah, so with, with Angelus, it basically started out by just trying to do good deals. Uh, would reach out to everybody that I could and say, hey, I'm doing this deal, check it out. Um, and I got feedback from a lot of people that, that uh, people liked the way that I wrote about them and the way that I crafted the story and kind of the way I articulated the important points. And, and I've just kept doing it and trying to improve. And, um, you know, as I've kind of gotten more, you know, uh, built more of a brand, I, I've gotten access to even better deals. Yeah. And, um, and as I do better deals, more people keep joining. So I, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's basically it. Interesting. And uh, you, you started, uh, you know, in 2019 and uh, you've, you know, uh, uh, I, I think you've already done around 35 investments uh, uh, in till I mean, this is like we're recording uh, in, in the mid of 2020. Yeah, and, but do you think, you know, a syndicate model can be an, an alternative to VC model or do you think it's going to disrupt the VC model uh, going forward? Because a lot of VCs might their own uh, biases, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to investing into startups. But, but do you think, uh, especially when it comes to seed funding, do you think an angel-less syndicate model or even crowdfunding campaigns uh, would, would be able to disrupt uh, the VC model going forward? I do. So I know this is a very controversial um, and, you know, maybe the word that you would use is bold bet. But I do think that within, it might take a while, I think within 20 years, there will be one or more syndicates amongst the top 10 or 20 VCs. I think, I think within the next 10 years, you're going to see angelist syndicate leads on the Forbes Midas list. So the Midas list is the, the ranking of the, the 100 best VCs at a given time. Right. Um, I think we'll start to see syndicate leads on there. Right. Um, and, and then, yeah, I think as time goes on, I think that like, so there's some things that are really interesting about the syndicate model. Um, so the first is one thing that I've levered uh, to my advantage is the carry that's deal by deal. So in a conventional venture fund, the, the carried interest, the, the, the share of the profits, the performance incentive is on the whole portfolio. So it's right. only when, when you, your whole portfolio performs well that the carry is worth something. But at a syndicate, the carry is, is deal by deal. And w- the way that I've used that to my advantage is that um, I share carry uh, on each deal very generously with those who help me on the deals. So I, pay, I, I share huge chunks of my carry with anyone who refers me a deal that I do. Um, I share carry with, uh, if, if someone helps one of our companies find their next round VC um, and, and we get an allocation in that round. Um, I'm, I've a friend that recently, uh, I, I plugged him into one of our companies to be an executive for that company. And oh. I intend to run, you know, share carry with him uh, on our next investment in that company. And so I, it's pretty neat to be able to share the carry in all these ways. And, and it, particularly on the deal sourcing, I found that I, I basically pay people that bring me deals more than Sequoia pays their scouts. Um, effectively, so Sequoia has a structure with their scouts where, where they get, they get uh, a performance fee. Uh, but, but I share a huge chunk of the carry with anyone that brings me a deal, and I do. And I found that, that basically already in the structure, I'm able to compensate my scouts more than Sequoia compensates their scouts. And I have a lot more of them. Um, and so, so one distinction, I, I think maybe the key is that in a conventional VC scout program, 
they have to have effectively written agreements with all their scouts. So it's, it's almost like they kind of hire these people as consultants and then they have a written agreement and, and that's just burdensome. Ba- basically, um, if you take syndicates kind of to their logical conclusion. So in the syndicate model, because of what I'm able to do with the carry around sharing it with people that bring me deals and very generously, and uh, I effectively sh- am able to pay my scouts more than Sequoia pays their scouts. Right. Um, and then also the what I bring to the table as a syndicate where, you know, if an entrepreneur is raising money from a VC, they usually get the help of that one partner. Um, But then the money behind them is just a bunch of boring pension funds. Um, And, and it's a very easy sell, you know, in contrast in a syndicate, I usually bring anywhere from 30 to 150 individuals um, who are all personally invested in the opportunity. They're spread around the world in a variety of careers as, you know, either, you know, former entrepreneurs or, uh, engineers or uh, tech executives, and you know, a lot of them are, are individual VC partners. And, and it's just a very easy sell to say, hey, who do, you, who do you want your money from? Do you want it from 100 awesome individuals who can help you in a bunch of different ways? Or a bunch of boring pension funds that aren't going to help you at all? Right. And, and so there are kind of all these di- things that are different. We're still figuring it out. Um, but the trajectory that this is on is that I think that syndicates will continue to grow in prominence. I think that within the next 10 years, we're going to see uh, Angelus Syndicate leads on the Forbes Midas list, right. which is a, a list of all the, all the, the 100 top VCs. Um, and, and who knows, maybe in a longer time frame, maybe within 20 years, we're going to see syndicates on the, you know, amongst the top 10 or 20 VC firms. Um, and, and, you know, this is the crazy bold prediction. Maybe one day a syndicate, if it's developed, you know, if you continue on this trajectory, right. uh, maybe a, a syndicate will displace uh, Sequoia as the number one startup investor. Um, I know that's heretical and crazy, but I don't know. It, it, and we haven't figured it all out yet. There still have to be things that are invented and, and refined. Right. But right. on the trajectory, it's, it's on. It could, it could go there. Right. But no, very interesting uh, because uh, what I've seen with, with the syndicate model is that uh, you, you can invite people and also sharing uh, the carry is, is also a way to, you know, help other people who, or actually it gives an incentive to other LPs to, to give you the best of deals. So, so that is, that is a really, uh, you know, positive thing out there. And I wanted to understand, you know, how, how can a founder choose a VC who can, who can be there with him for 10 years. And, you know, uh, it's almost like a marriage when a founder gets a, gets a VC on board, how do they get to choose a good VC who can help them uh, build the company and avoid, you know, getting, getting a bad VC on board? Oh, it's really hard. Um, so the truth is, I, I, so the first thing I learned is I think that the vast, so it's such a weird dynamic because VCs, their role is, is not to build your company for you, but they try to act like they are. Like oftentimes to kind of win deals or act like they're so helpful, they talk about all this value they bring. But the reality is VCs don't, I've heard of very few cases where the VCs are actually being super helpful to the companies. Um, And the reality is it's the company, you know, it's the founder and and the people he hires. Those are the people in the company that are building it. And, and again, every VC will try to say, Oh no, we help so much and we, we do all this value, but how can, like, how can, like most VCs are invested in at least 10 different companies and it's just that one individual that's investing in all of them. How is that person going to add so much more value than, 
the CEO that's in there full time and is like owns a lot of it and, and all the employees that are working day and night trying to trying to make this thing succeed. And it almost seems arrogant for VCs to claim that they are the cause of the success of companies or, or anything like that. Um, so I, I guess my kind of cynical view is that um, VCs aren't supposed to add that much value. If, if they do, if they make some intros, help with some hires, sure, that's great. Like do it. And, and I do that. Uh, but to kind of claim that VCs are going to be in there side by side with the founders, um, helping them build their companies. I think it's, uh, um, I don't think that's ever really true. And, and, and it's like, I think it's Vinod Kosla also who's, who says that um, 90% of, or like some huge percentage of VCs add no value. And then the ones that add no value actually add negative value. <laughs> there are almost none that, that add positive value. And I'm sure there are some that add positive value. And I, I would like to think that I'm one. I don't, I, but I don't do anything near what, what the entrepreneurs do. I mean, the, the people that are actually running their businesses, um, they're the heroes. And, you know, sure, I, I'm glad I can bring in some money so that they can kind of be more successful, but it's a pretty small piece of their overall journey. So, um, right. I don't know, I guess, I, I guess I'd like to take a little bit more humble approach. Right. And, then, and then, yeah, like I'm investing in a lot of companies. And so... The truth is I'm not that involved with them. I try to pick really great people that are competent and I think are going to be successful on their own. I help them get some extra money in and, and then I let them go do it. Um, and sure, I love to hear about how they're doing and if there are simple things I can help with, I'd love to help. Uh, but the reality is the people building the companies, the ones that are going to, you know, the people that are going to make them successful are the entrepreneurs themselves. And, uh, you know, since you mentioned you you invest more than 35 uh, companies and you uh, uh, build your syndicate, what what advice are you giving to founders who are heavily impacted by COVID, uh, especially when it comes to transportation companies and uh, uh, to really uh, effectively analyze their, their spend and, you know, optimize their runway? Uh, uh, what is what is your, uh, uh, you know, outlook, whether we're going to have a V-shape or an L-shape recovery, uh, you know, uh, going forward? It's super, super hard. And it's, yeah. it's uh, like randomly cruel. Right. Um, so some companies have just gotten completely obliterated by COVID. It really sucks. And, and right. it's like you couldn't have predicted which ones those were going to be ahead of time. Right. Um, like there's some companies doing great. And then as long as COVID exists, they do, they, their revenue goes to zero. And it just sucks. It's like they did everything right. And this, this, this thing came on and, and screwed them over. Um, but then on the flip side, there are a lot of companies that also randomly have really benefited from it and seen a boost in sales because people need their service more than they did before COVID. And, and so it's, it's kind of randomly boosted and hurt different, different companies. And in many cases, there's not a lot you can do. But what I have seen is that some entrepreneurs have figured out really good pivots. Like, you know, maybe they saw an evolution of their business that became a lot more relevant in a COVID world. Um, or there are others that completely switched verticals um, and they were still nimble enough that they could kind of and turn off their original business and move all their employees and resources over to something else that is a lot more relevant. And I think that the companies that are so like the beauty of startups is that they are so nimble. And, you know, although oftentimes they're kind of on one business, they're not fully invested in that business usually. And, and they're often in a position where they can kind of switch over to something else pretty quickly. And, and I think that, that that's what entrepreneurs that have been impacted have to focus on. It's just, okay, we're a nimble business. What can we move to to continue to be successful? And, and that's also something that is especially hard for the large later stage companies, or, you know, public companies. Even. Um, 
large public companies with thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees can't just change their business overnight. Right. Um, and so I think those companies that have been negatively impacted, like the airlines is one example, there's very little hope for them. Like they just have to hope that everything gets better. Uh, but for startups, like, you know, a lot of them are software based and nimble and I know it's not easy, but if they can find a, a pivot to something that, that makes more sense. Um, and, and I guess the, the, the last thing I'd, I'd say is that um, we really don't know how long COVID is going to last. Right. It might last 10 years. I mean, I really hope that's not the case, but this might be with us for a long time. Um, you know, we might get a, a, a V-shaped recovery in the economy because people still have money and they need to spend and they need to eat and they need to do things. But the companies that have gotten whacked by COVID may never come back. Um, you know, we passed, you know, the bubonic plague, I think lasted for, it was either decades or centuries. Um, right, and, right. and who knows, like, you know, HIV, you know, they said for years that they would have an HIV, uh, a vaccine for HIV and we never right. got it. It's still here, right. <laughs> you know, right. decades later. Right. And yeah, we may never have a, a vaccine for COVID. We may, this may be how we live for a long time. So they, anyway, but, but it might also go away. So right. I guess I, I think that entrepreneurs should just embrace the uncertainty and try to set themselves up for success no matter what happens in the world. You can't hope for any of anyone out there. Got it, got it. And, um, you know, I, uh, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Favorite business book? Peter Thiel, Zero to One. And I know it's controversial, uh, but yeah. I, I think it has a lot of original thinking and helped me kind of think about the world in a different way. Got it. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you, uh, when you started working on uh, uh, Unpopular, uh, Unpopular uh, Syndicate, uh, uh, what is the one thing you would have done differently or, uh, you know, what is the one thing you would have focused on? Oh, with starting the syndicate? Yeah. Oh, um, you know, to, to be honest, I feel very fortunate that the syndicate has gone as well as it has. Um, right. You know, I, I, I've heard from Angelus that I'm, I'm now within the top three syndicates um, wow. in terms of money moved per month, and, and I'm bigger than people that have been on it for a long time. So I feel very fortunate that my kind of development has been as successful as it has. And, and I, you know, sure, maybe there are things I could have gone back and changed. You know, I, I'm in a couple deals that have not gone well. I wish I hadn't done those, but, you know, that's venture. Um, okay. so no, I, I feel very grateful that, that things have worked as well as they have. Got it. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, uh, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Oh, I, I'm pretty, I, I'm, it's funny for, for a technology investor, I'm very, uh, much not on the forefront of technology. Um, I use Gmail, I use Zoom, um, okay. I text with WhatsApp. Um, I think that is about. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't have anything fancy that I use. Got it. And uh, you know, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Unpopular Ventures? Well, so there's there's a fair bit about me online already. Um, so okay. start there. Um, so the reality is, um, I, I'm in the fortunate position that that I get just a, a ton of deal flow. Um, I have thirty like I. I I don't know what the number is exactly, but I have, I have 20 to 30 deals in my email right now that I, that I still need to respond to. They're a couple days old. Right. And the reality is I, I, I just don't have the time to, to kind of consider everything and chat with everybody. And, right. and so I therefore place a high emphasis on filtering. Um, and so I really look to actually my LPs to, to help me find great deals. And, and in fact, um, because I'm so generous with the carry that I share with, uh, with, uh, with anyone who refers me a deal, it can be an LP or it could be a friend. Um, I really look for them to do some vetting already, like having done some real diligence, help me articulate maybe three three to five points about why this one is super compelling. 
Um, bef- and and I, I really kind of lean on that to kind of help me filter down from too many deals for me to process right now and kind of figure out which are the ones to, to focus on. Um, so so I, I guess the advice that I would give is, um, you know, I do have over a thousand LPs in my syndicate and lots of portfolio CEOs. And if you really think you're fit for me, um, I, I know it's a cop out and I feel bad saying it, but, but the truth is reach out to someone who knows me um, and convince them. Uh, and, and if you do and they bring it to me and we do it, they, they get a big reward <laughs> because I should carry back with them. Uh, but the, the truth is I, I, I just don't have enough hours in the day to, to respond to everybody that, that would like to talk to me. I feel terrible about Got it. And, and do you have any recent investment that you've made this year that you, you really, you know, uh, uh, you know, positive and you're going to go about? All of them. <laughs> I, I, we're in a lot of really great ones. Um, I mean, there, there, there are a few that are really starting to break away. Um, Curtsy, as one example, is just doing phenomenally well. Um, their growth is off the charts. Um, I think they're going to end up with a huge Series A um, soon. Uh, Kite, so, so, so what they are, Curtsy, is it um, lets you buy and sell clothes from your phone. Um, oh, okay. And the key part is, is selling, you know, selling your used clothes, and they give you like digital, digital wardrobe, so you can kind of uh, buy and sell clothes with your friends and stuff like that. Um, and it's just really done surprisingly well. It's very popular with, with young women. Another one that, that seems to really be taking off is uh, Kite, which is um, it's kind of uh, rental cars on demand. Um, so they, they deliver your rental car for you. And it's really focused on people that have gone full Uber, as they call it, oh, where, okay. uh, you know, they, they, they don't want to own a car anymore. And they take an Uber or a, or, um, uh, a Lime bike uh, whenever they need to get anywhere. But they still want a car maybe 10% of the time to go to a business meeting or go on a weekend trip. But it's really difficult for them to get over to the rental car center. They would have to take an Uber to get there. Um, and so this company brings the rental cars to you. And, and they've also seen phenomenal growth even through COVID. Um, and, and I think that they have their, a big next round coming together soon too. And anyway, those, those were two that came to mind. But there's a lot that are doing great. Omsom is one we just invested in. And they just launched uh, less than a month ago. And they've seen you know, un- unbelievable sales traction already. And it seems very popular. And people are repeat ordering and loving the product. And so that one's cool too. And I don't know. I, I only invest in companies I'm very excited about. So I, I think everything in our portfolio is, is super exciting and, and very bullish on. Uh, uh, Peter, we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed speaking to you, man. Likewise. Thank you so much for reaching out, Robert. And um, yeah, really great to have you in the syndicate. And um, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad we're able to do this. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.